Well, good morning, C4. Isn't it great to see these Care Fund buckets being filled? What an awesome, awesome thing. Well, this morning we're going to be talking about marriage. I'd like you to introduce you to this old couple on the screen that's been married for 28 years. I know. Is that not 80s? Is that not screaming of the 80s? That's all you get. You get no more. Anyway, 28, 29 years. Yes, I've been married to the same man. His name is Dean, and you know what? It's been good. Excellent. Not going to tell too many stories this morning. But you know, when we come into marriage, we come in with all kinds of ideas, don't we? And a lot of our ideas about marriage have come from the way we were raised. I mean, Dean, clearly when he raised me, uh, felt that he, when he did I, what did I just say? Maybe we'll just reverse and start all over again. When Dean married me, he did not raise me. His mother raised him, and she did a very good job, and she was Betty Crocker. Now, for you young people who don't know who Betty Crocker is, Betty Crocker cooks everything. She has anything, you know, and it's gourmet every meal, and of course, that's who he married. Not. So... Dean might have had some disappointments when he married me. Now, I, I was raised in a family where my dad was a workaholic. He loves his business. That's what he does. That's who he is. And, you know, he would work and work and work. And, and every, once a year, he'd go out and shoot a deer. And then he would go back to work, you know. And I married, a, my husband is not like that at all. In fact, he's never shot a deer yet. So, you know, we come into marriage with all kinds of ideas, don't we? And expectations, and either they're from the way we were raised, or the way we wish we were raised, or the way we weren't raised, or the way TV has raised us, right? I mean, we can all look at the Archie Bunkers in All in the Family, and we can consider The Simpsons. I mean, you pick your choice of influence on the media. Who informs you about marriage? What informs you about marriage? And I recognize that today in this size of room, there are really three groups of people. There's those who are married, happily or maybe not so happily. There are those in this room who are single, some wish they were married. Some are glad they're not married. Some are too young to even think about marriage. And then there are those in this room who have deep hurt and woundedness, who are no longer married. And the whole concept, the whole topic of marriage is a difficult and tender place for you this morning. So I just want to acknowledge that this topic of marriage can be difficult. It can be emotional, uh, it can be good, it can be bad, and everything in between. You know, we have great struggle in our society in understanding marriage and working out marriage. You single people, you may idealize marriage. You may think it's the answer to your loneliness and your need to belong. Married people, maybe some of you have underestimated the power of marriage. Or maybe you're living in deep disappointment that all your dreams have not come true. And those who are divorced, marriage can bring about thoughts of pain, hurt and failure, and maybe indifference. So marriage can be difficult. Can I ask you this morning, would you be willing for the next few minutes to invite Jesus to speak to you? Would you be willing to go with me? I'm not going to stand up here and give you all kinds of marriage advice. I've been married long enough to know better. What I'm going to do is take you to the Word of God. Because I think we all need a fresh reminder of what God's intentions, what His plan is for marriage. Whether we're married or not, we need to lay down our disappointments, perhaps our biases, our history, and welcome the Holy Spirit to be our teacher. What does God's Word actually say about marriage? You know, Ephesians 5, we've been tromping through this book of Ephesians now for some months. 
We're in chapter 5. We're starting at verse 21, and we'll be working to, uh, through to verse 33 today. And we're going to pick up where John left off last week. You see, John taught us verses 15 to 18 last week, and really, these verses were not separate. They were all part of the same uh, group of verses, and they speak to an overall theme, and that is of mutual submission one to another. You see, 15 to 18 describes what it means to be filled with the Spirit. John did an excellent job, as always. Last week, we had the lighter and the candles and the reminder of what it is to be filled with the Spirit. And do you know what? This passage, when we start at verse 21 of chapter 5 in Ephesians, says simply this, submit to one another. You see, the theme of mutual submission to one another is what is umbrellaed actually over not just this week's passage, but last week's passage, and I would suggest over the entire book of Ephesians. What does that word submit mean? Because honestly, none of us are a big fan of that word, are we? I mean, I don't care if you're male or female, if you're thinking about work, if you're thinking about marriage, the word submit, just we struggle with that. Well, this, the Greek word submit in this text literally means to arrange under, to arrange under. John taught us last week that it does not mean simply to be supportive of or to be committed to or to identify with. It literally means to arrange under. Submission is a crucial ingredient in Christian living. Submission describes self-giving, Love. It describes humility. It describes a willingness for one to give up their rights even unto their own life. Philippians 2. It's a great Christian hymn, actually, of the early church. And it describes literally what this word submit means. And it's through Jesus Christ that we see the best definitions. Philippians 2 3 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Submit means to arrange under, which assumes there's something above you. When you submit as described by the way Jesus submitted in Philippians 2, you are actually submitting, you're putting others, you're putting someone else above. People consider, when you submit, you are considering people more valuable than yourself. This passage actually goes on to describe how Christ did that. You know, Jesus wasn't weak. He didn't give in to anyone, but he knew what it meant to submit. You see, the Trinity itself, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are equal, they are one, but they actually choose to submit to one another in the different roles that are required of them. And Jesus most explicitly in Philippians 2 said he took on the role actually of humility and submission to the will of his Father. By becoming human, by coming to this earth, by going to the cross and giving up his life, submission is an incredibly strong, free act of the will, and it's based on valuing or putting someone else above you. In the end, submission really is nothing more than a decision about the relative worth of another person. And the way in which you are going to choose to respect, to love, or to honor them. To arrange under means to put another above yourself above your needs, above your desires, above your wants, to think of their needs first. Christ had all the authority. He had to choose to lay it aside, to humble himself, to submit, to put aside his rights, his privileges, his grounds, his kingdom, his throne out of great love for us. And Philippians 2 says, wow, Jesus chose to submit, to put our need of salvation ahead of himself, to put aside his throne and to come to earth for us. It is the greatest act of strength and love. 
Why would we ever choose to submit? Well, the verse goes on to say, out of reverence for Christ. Out of reverence for Christ. You see, submission takes place out of a response, our response to Christ. It is, as John said last week, I'm doing this as an act of worship to Jesus, as an act of my response to Jesus. This is, I want to be like Jesus, and because of what he has done for me, I choose to submit. Mutual submission is actually one of the most powerful signs and indication that you are, in fact, filled with the Holy Spirit. What has Ephesians taught us so far? Ephesians has said unity. Ephesians has said oneness. Ephesians says, be part of Christ's body. Now, express that in your mutual submission. Last week, John said this, the last evidence, the last and the greatest sign that a church is all in this together, that a church is united, that the Holy Spirit is truly invited and wanted, and that the Holy Spirit is ungrieved, the last evidence is when we are being filled with the Spirit is when we see this in our relationships. And I would say marriage is the toughest relationship to prove it. You know, sometimes it's easy to be filled with the Spirit towards friends and coworkers and people that you just, you know, you get to see once in a while. But in marriage, we are truly tested in this matter of submission. And you know what? Jesus knew that. Do our marriages exhibit, do they put on display, do they actually show off oneness? Do they show off unity? Do our marriages show off mutual sub submission? Well, you know what? This is not a call to those who don't follow Christ. This is strictly for Christians because actually you would never want to do this. That's the truth. You would never want to live like this. I mean, let's be real. In fact, if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, you, you won't even be able to begin to live like this. This is actually impossible. We cannot do this in our own strength because it's not natural. But you know what it is? It's supernatural. This is supernatural living. This actually requires the Spirit of God in us like no other. This requires us to be filled, to be controlled, and to not be grieving the Spirit. That is why I believe Paul spent the previous verses in Ephesians telling us the extreme importance of being filled with the Holy Spirit because otherwise, this is absolutely impossible. So Paul in this passage uses marriage as an example of what it means to mutually submit to one another. Yes, catch that. Not just wives submit. We'll get there. But both men and women are to mutually submit to one another because as believers, we are called to reflect God, to show the world what he's really like, that we should be able, they should be able to see his glory and his goodness and his love in our marriages. But here is our struggle. You see, we live in the world, and the world's view of men and women is not God's view. On the extreme side of the worldview of women, you would have feminism. You see, feminism at its core is anti-biblical. I'm not suggesting that feminism didn't do some good things, but feminism in itself is not biblical, and because this is the core belief of feminism. Men are the problem. You see, feminists say men are the problem. On the other side, you would have in our worldview an extreme view called chauvinism. You see, chauvinism is anti-biblical. It, at its core, chauvinism says women are the problem. Right? Men are the problem. Women are the problem. You know, you can't live in this world without being affected and influenced by that type of thinking. You might say, well, I'm not a feminist, I'm not a chauvinist, but actually, we fight against this thinking. 
We have to be so careful of this thinking. Here is the difference. Here's what Christianity says. Sin is the problem. Do you see the difference? When we have a feminist or a chauvinist or any range in between point of view of the role and the value and worth of men and women, we will always be divided and against one another. When we come to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and we say sin is the problem, sin is actually the barrier between God and man and sin is the barrier between men and women. Christ is the one that draws men and women to himself. When we recognize and stop blaming one another in our marriages or in our world, we, it requires us to submit to the truth of the cross. When we recognize that sin is the problem, we are actually drawn into mutual submission right away because it requires you to submit to the truth of salvation that you are a sinner that you are in need of forgiveness. And this actually draws us closer together in our marriages. You know, in marriage, if you live separate lives, you will live a separate marriage, won't you? If you have selfishness and stubbornness as an ongoing quality in your marriage, either the man or the woman, it will divide your marriage. It will pit you against one another. If you have pride and unforgiveness in your marriage... It will not only divide your marriage, it will ruin your marriage. When you are filled with the Spirit, you will be able to come in line with a life of submission to the cross of Christ, to the reality that you are a sinner and so is your spouse. It humbles you. It gives you great mercy towards one another. And it's the proper perspective that we all need when we're working out our marriages. We need to get our focus in the right place, and that's on Christ. You see, he wants us to have a fulfilled marriage, but this is the only way to have it is to look at him. He says, you got to look at me. you got to look at who I am. you got to look at how I have demonstrated love and mercy towards you. In this passage in Ephesians, there are three subjects. There's the conduct of wife, the conduct of husband, and there is the relation of Christ to the church. So let's take a closer look. Ephesians 5 verse 22 says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Well, that just caught the attention of the women and the men. Was there any elbow? Were there any elbows in the room at that moment? You know, this could be read. The original Greek does not actually have the word submit there. It's an overflow of verse 21. Wives, as an example of mutual submission, wives unto your husbands. It's inferred that we are to submit. Notice that this is to your own husbands. This is not addressing women are to submit to all men, sorry men, but rather that they are to submit to their own husband. This passage has been abused, it's been misused, and it's been misunderstood both in marriages and in the church. Well, before we get all defensive women, and men before you get all too puffed up, I want to take you back to the beginning. I want to take you back to Genesis where it all began because I think we have to ask how can we understand this role of wives submitting to their husbands and the role of men loving their wives as we'll see in the passage. Well, I want you to pause for a minute. Let's go back. Genesis 2, before sin entered the world, both men and women were both made in the image of God. They were equally created with equal dignity and equal status. They were both given co-regency and co-dominion over creation. Both were to work in the garden. They were equally responsible for community, for marriage, and for the family. This is not a discussion about inequality, but rather they were designed differently. We were made male and female. There's no mistake. Every cell in your body points to a double X chromosome or an XY chromosome. There is no mistake. It is male or female. We are different. That is on purpose by God's design, and yet we complement one another. Now, an interesting thing happens in Genesis. God creates woman. That is interesting. And in Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, it is not good 
for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Well, helper, help me understand this because that just does not sound like a, I don't know, do I want to be a helper? Am I to wait on my husband hand and foot? He would probably agree, but you know, I mean, is that what this means that women somehow got a lower level job posting that, you know, we're to be the waiting on our men? The same word helper, the original Hebrew word is spelled E-Z-E-R, Ezer. Every single time that that word helper is used in the Old Testament, do you know who it refers to? God himself. God calls himself our Ezer. God is our helper. He says, I am your Ezer. I am your helper in times of trouble. I will make up for what you are lacking. God is our helper. He is not weak. He is not lesser than, but he is our helper. He makes up for when we are weak. Women, this is a strong helper. You know, the next, the other word that describes, I will make a suitable helper. Well, suitable in the English is not the best translation from the Hebrew because that Hebrew word literally could be translated this way, like opposite him. It's like two pieces of a puzzle that fit together because they're not exactly alike, nor are they randomly different, but together they actually make up one piece. Women, you are a strong helper to make up for the want or the need in men for what he lacks, for where he is weak. You are there to complement, not to compete. You are there to build up, not to tear down. You are there to encourage and assist, to come alongside, to speak with kindness and respect. This is not, I'll submit to you when you are good to me. I'll submit to you when you do something for me. I'm going to hold out on you until you treat me the way I want you to treat me. That's not what this word is saying. We are to, this does not, that attitude doesn't go towards oneness or unity. It actually goes into division, doesn't it? When we take on the Jesus-like role in our marriage of humility, it's a privilege. It's a willingness to be a strong helper, to submit to the needs of our spouse, to value them above ourselves. Philippians 2 Jesus chose to submit to the Father. He wasn't weak, yet he laid aside his rights to submit to the will of the Father. And guess what happens? When Jesus was willing to submit and do his role, then together they could save the world. Did you hear that? When Jesus was willing to submit and take on the role of humility, together they could save the world. Women and men are designed to reflect God, to just demonstrate to the world what Jesus is like in his humility to the Father. Women, when people look at you as a woman in marriage, they should see Jesus. They should see a strong helper, fully equal, but taken on the heart of humility. You know, man was also given the role of authority in relationship before the fall. God designed men to reflect himself to reflect himself as well in men. Genesis 2:15 says, "The Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it." God made man outside of the garden. And then he placed man into the garden and he gave him instructions to work it and to care for it. Why did God do that? You see, right from the beginning, God knew that men were designed to be responsible for, to take care of, to be the keeper. To take care of in the Hebrew could be translated to be in charge of. Keeping is the role of men. This includes spiritual keeping. In the role of taking spiritual authority over their wives and families to be the protector, to be both physically and spiritually the heart and the head of the home. That is God's design. He also gave man instructions in the garden. He said, don't eat of that tree. Eve wasn't even there. He also gave man a name that animal exercise. And Eve wasn't there. This itself demonstrates from the, be, from the very beginning the authority of the role of naming 
that God gave to man, God knew that man needed to practice his keeping skills. So when he made Eve, man was really excited. You see, God's intention is marriage is that it will be good, that man should not be alone, that man cannot keep all by themselves. It's too much. God said it's not good. He needs a strong helper. This brings joy and delight in marriage. You see, our differences were established right from the beginning. Our roles were established right from the beginning before sin. We have equal value. We have equal dignity. We have equal worth before God. But marriage is designed for oneness and for unity. It says in Genesis that man will leave his father and mother and cling and cleave to one flesh. The two become one. But then came sin, the fall. It affected marriage. You see, right away, the first thing that starts happening is blaming. Now, we wouldn't know anything about that, would we? I'm sure you've never blamed your spouse for one thing. I mean, I've never blamed Dean for anything. Um, and he, surely he's never blamed. I mean, come on, get real. Like, you know, we do it all the time, especially in those difficult seasons. If only you were a better husband, if only you were a better wife, if you were a stronger dad or a stronger mom, we wouldn't be in this mess. You see, blaming breakdown of oneness. Whose fault is it anyway? This is the curse. This is the curse of sin, the breaking of oneness and unity that reflects God himself. Genesis 3.16 says, to the woman, this will be the curse because of sin. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Well, what does it mean your desire will be for your husband? Well, we have to look actually at Genesis 4, verse 7. That same word desire is used there. Listen to how it's used there. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. You see, essentially, the curse on women as a result of sin, now women, listen up, is that she will desire to control, resist, oppose, and act against her husband. Now, i got to be honest. Probably many of you haven't heard this passage spoken from a woman, and maybe you're curious. But I'm going to confess, as a woman, that's right. We love to control, to resist, to oppose, and to act against. That is the struggle that we have in our sin nature, and God has warned us. You see, women, you will have the inclination to grab control of the reins and independently, independently go on your own. Anybody relate? Men, you got a curse as well. And your curse as a result of sin is that it says he will rule over you. Now, rule is to have headship, oversight, and authority, which we already see was God's intention. But when this role of headship is coming from a place that lacks humility, that lacks mutual submission, that lacks the ability to put someone above yourself. It's dominating. It's self-centered. It's selfish. It's dictatorial. And it's harsh. Men, am I right? Thank you. <laughs> you know, we all need to be real about this. Men over the ages have truly abused women, and many religions condone it, and they have a wrong understanding of Scripture. Generally speaking, sin, remember, sin is the problem. Sin twisted the desire of woman to respond in a supportive way to her man into a negative desire to resist and rebel against him. Sin twisted the positive drive of men to use his strength to lead, to protect, to provide, to be the keeper of women into a negative tendency to abuse her or to abdicate his responsibility altogether. Does that not ring a bell? You see, it's ultimately a grab for power and domination from both men and women, isn't it? What was meant for oneness is now about power, control, and division. 
Men, you are the problem. Women, you are the problem. But what does it say here? Sin is the problem. You see, this is an issue of oneness. It's not an issue of unequality. Women, then, how do you submit to your husbands when this is unnatural? The verse clearly says, as unto the Lord, in the same way, women, that you choose to submit to the rule, the reign, and the welcoming love of the Lord Jesus, that you speak well of your husband, you build him up, you become a strong helper, you think about his needs, you be supportive to him when he is weak, you let him lead. Ephesians 5.23 says, for the husband is the head of the wife, as this, in the same way, that Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. You see, that word head has been abused, hasn't it? It's been debated over the ages, and this is not a license to dominate. Paul never intended to even suggest that women were servants, compelled to follow any and every desire of their husband. It does not say obey their husband, nor does it give license for husbands to attempt to force submission on their wives. What does head mean? Well, the Greek word in that text means responsibility for. Doesn't that ring a bell of what happened in the garden? responsibility for. Husbands, you have responsibility for your wives. You are not to boss or lord it over them as, as some would think, but you are to love them in the same way that Christ loved the church to the point of laying down your life. This verse tells us that a husband is to be head of the wife just like Jesus. Husbands, you have to look to Jesus. You have to look to the way he loves and leads the church, his bride, his body that he saved and brought to himself. Ephesians uh, verse 24 says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Women, what does this look like to, to let your husband be the head as you submit? Well, I would suggest that... It's as simple as this. You see, men and women are different. Here, one of the fundamental differences of women, I'm generalizing, so just hang in there with me, that women, we can multitask. Do you know what I mean? Like women, we can, we can do many things at one time. I mean, I can be like doing dishes. I could have a baby on my hip here. I could be on the phone, and I'm cooking dinner all the same time. Like it's for real, true. I don't have babies anymore, but you know. I, but it works. Women, we can do this. Men, no offense, but you can only do one thing at a time. You know, it's like one of the fundamental differences of men and women. But let me tell you why this is true. Because men, they're, oh, thank you. Men... They get to hold the umbrella. You see, they only have one free hand. <laughs> Men are the holder of the umbrella. You see, their role is the keeper of the umbrella. Women, let them hold the umbrella. Because then you get to be all that you were designed to be. You get to use your gifts. You get to follow the calling of Christ in your life, you are free, you are protected, you are safe, and you can shine. Let them hold the umbrella. If you reject this umbrella and you go out on your own, you are a sitting duck. And what I mean to that is the assaults from the unholy trinity, the world, the flesh, and the devil will be all over you. You have left your protection. Men, if you don't hold that umbrella over your wife and your family, your family is unprotected. They will be assaulted by the world, the flesh, and the evil one. The enemy actually understands this. They see whether the man is holding the umbrella. And if there is no umbrella holder in that house, then they will come in like a vengeance. They will destroy your family they will destroy, go after your children. They will go after your marriage itself. Women, if you try to hold this umbrella, you're not going to be free to be all that, you, that you're meant to be. And honestly, you're just going to get in the way and it's going to be a fight and a struggle like this. Who gets to hold the umbrella? 
Women, you will not be free if you try to take this from your man. But men, can I suggest to you, don't ever use this umbrella as a weapon. Abuse, God never condones it. Not physically, mentally, emotionally, sexually, or spiritually. You are not, women, you are not called to submit to abuse. Men, you are never to use your role of authority to abuse, to overpower women. What if you're single or divorced? Thank you. <laughs> what if you're single or divorced? You have no husband. Jesus is holding the umbrella. He is your husband. Yeah. You can be sure that he will never use that umbrella to abuse you. You can be sure that you can trust him. Jesus is holding your umbrella. Those who have been hurt that are separated out of the marriage union, he is your husband. He is a perfect husband. <laughs> Just as wives are to submit to their husbands out of reverence for Christ, believers, we all need to get under the umbrella of Christ, don't we? We all need to choose to submit to his protection and authority. You know, verse 25 said, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Look at how Jesus shows us how to lead men. It's, it's a, a paradox. He's a servant leader. Men, listen to this. If you're feeling like, I'm not a great leader, I don't know what, leadership has such, you know, it can have really tainted views. Sometimes we feel like, I just don't have the personality. Some people are natural leaders, some... This is not about personality. It has nothing to do with personality. It has nothing to do with gifts at all. You are called to be a servant leader, a great servant. Think about a great servant. They t look out for the needs of the one they're serving, don't they? And they actually anticipate the needs of the one they're serving even before that person can ask for it. They're ready to respond. You see, leadership at its core is to initiate. Men, you don't have to be Tarzan swinging from trees, bound, pounding on your chest. God designed you to lead in a way that is Christ-like, that demonstrates servanthood. It's one that initiates. It's one that puts other needs above your own. It's one that serves. It's one that lays aside their desires for the betterment of their wife. Servant leadership is the greatest, again, example of Christ. He demonstrated this to us by washing his disciples' feet. And he says, do this to each other. He demonstrated ultimately by sacrificing his life on a cross. This is a high calling, husbands. This is a high calling. To love your wife to the point that you would be willing to die for her, to unselfishly serve her, to put her needs ahead of your own, Women, I think we got off easy. Men, you can't love like this on your own strength. You need the Holy Spirit. Women, you can't submit like this in your own strength. You need the Holy Spirit. You see, this is a supernatural marriage. Both of us get to be Jesus-like Men, you get to be Jesus-like in the way you love. Women, you get to be Jesus-like in the way you submit. Together, we are a reflection of Christ, of our oneness, of our unity, of our strength and our humility combined. Do you know, in ancient manuscripts, when Paul wrote this, this was profoundly anti-cultural. This is based on a Christ-centered view of marriage, a supernatural marriage. In the ancient world, men could do whatever they wanted. They could divorce their wife over the smell of burnt toast. Well, that would be divorced a long time ago. <laughs> Husbands simply had to provide for food and shelter. They were free to do whatever they want, and wives were just obligated to take care of their husbands and the home. Paul's words are very radical. Husbands are called to complete unselfish living, to a place where their well-being of their wife comes first and the caring of their wife comes first above himself. It's a paradox of servant leadership. To submit or to defer to another's needs makes for great leadership. You see, in the end, submission and love are equal. 
because they're both expressions of Christ, aren't they? We are then given an Old Testament illustration of how the husband is to care for the wife in verse 26 and 27, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. This is imagery, actually, of God and Israel. Israel was God's marriage partner, and it depicts how God cared for, washed, purified, adorned, and married Israel as his bride. Do you see the idea of keeping? Does this mean, men, that you have to be Bible scholars? The water, you know, washing with water through the word? Well, no. Men, what this says is make the word of God the standard in your home. Make the word of God set the standards in your home. I would suggest praying with And for your wife, your prayers for her will wash over her with so much power and blessing. And you don't have to be a fancy prayer person. Your simple prayers, men, because you're the umbrella holder and the keeper, a simple prayer on behalf of your wife has huge ramifications in the spiritual realm. You know, Dean and I learned this as I shared back in October when I shared with you about You Are the House and I told you a little bit about our family story. And in a difficult season where all three of our kids were running from Jesus, you think that didn't divide us? That could have pitted us and at times it did against each other. But I'll tell you, Because of what scripture says about come to the cross, you are both in need of a savior. Dean and I chose to submit to Christ. We chose, not because we're better than anyone else, we were desperate, we needed the power of the Holy Spirit, nothing within our own strength was going to change our family situation. But I can tell you, the one thing that has strengthened our marriage over 28 years, if I can give any word of marriage advice today, this is it. Start, if you haven't already started, or keep on praying with one another. You know, we were not great at practicing prayer together. We were praying people, but mainly apart. And in desperate times, what it did was drove us together to our knees together. And I can tell you that is the reason our children walk with Jesus. I can tell you that if you want to have a marriage that is strong, you get on your knees together. You pray together. You call sin the problem. Stop blaming each other, and you draw together in humility to the cross of Christ. And you pray together. And if you don't know how to pray, like we were not even sure how to pray or what to pray for. We got good books that helped us pray, like The Power of Praying Parents. And we just started reading those prayers. I mean, we have Google Google what to pray together as a husband and wife, and boom, you will get many prayers. But you know what? Go to the Word of God and start praying the Word of God. Just pray together. It will change your attitude, and I suggest it will change your circumstances. In this way, in this same way, husbands, verse 28 and 29, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does for the church. It's not love yourself first, then you'll be able to love another. It's assumed you already love yourself and you take care of yourself. That's natural. What's unnatural is to love someone else above yourself. This is based on oneness. This is based on oneness. In verse 30 and 32, it says, For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. You know, he doesn't let this idea go, does he? He takes it even further. The union between believers and Christ is so real that Christians are actually members of Christ's body. This assumes that Christians are so intimately joined to Christ that they are part of him. This really summarizes Ephesians. We are part of Christ. We are part of one another. The church is one body. We are united. We are united with Christ. We are united with each other. And this is most demonstrated in the most powerful way on this earth in marriage. When we are intimately connected, when we are united, when we are joined together. In Genesis 2.24, it says, and that's, it's, it's actually quoted right there, that 
two will become one flesh. Paul calls this a profound mystery. Is it because a mystery is something we can never know? No. Remember John taught us that a mystery is something you can only know if God reveals it to you. You see, Christian marriage is a mystery. You can't truly understand it unless Jesus reveals it to you and unless you have the power of the Holy Spirit. The picture of submission and leadership through the umbrella image, here's the final verse in that chapter, says it. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and his wife must respect, the wife must respect her husband. You know, the summary of this chapter is love and respect. God knows, actually, what we're designed for, what our deepest needs are. Women have a high need to know their love. Men, newsflash, you said you loved her on the wedding day. It's not good enough. You need to constantly remind your wife that you love her. That's an ongoing call in your life. And you need to demonstrate that in the way that you serve her, in the way that you lead her, in the way you protect her. Men have a high need to be respected. Women, we must understand that they've been given the role to hold the umbrella, that they've been called to be the keeper and the protector. We must welcome their protection and encourage them to, to be the protector. God is the designer of marriage. He knows what we actually need. He knows what is best for those who are hurting in your marriage. Are you willing to take steps towards the cross? Are you willing to take a journey and to begin, perhaps, the process of forgiveness one to another? You will only find that at the cross in the recognition that sin is actually the problem in your marriage. God loves to restore marriages. I wish we had time because I could point throughout this room because I know stories of people. And I know stories of people who could stand up right now and testify that Jesus saved their marriage. In fact, do I have a witness? Has anybody testified? Can you put your hand up? Can you identify that Jesus has saved your marriage? Look at these hands around this room. Jesus has saved your marriage. I believe Jesus saved our marriage. Jesus loves marriage. It's his idea. Nothing is too big for him. He is not too busy to help you. He loves to restore marriages. Nothing has gone too far. Do you know, C4, we are committed to marriage. We are committed to seeing God flourish in our church, and we believe that when marriages are actually revived, that churches are revived. And I would practically suggest to you a few things. Pastor Gary, he is there as our care pastor, and he loves to meet with couples for marriage. Do not hesitate to call him. I would strongly encourage you, if you have not done so in your marriage, I don't care if you're in a good place or not such a good place, get into Christian counseling. We are connected with life care centers. I encourage you to go and get a, get a, you know, a refresher. If you're not, you know, don't wait till you're right in the crisis. Like, get there and get the help that you need. A couple weeks ago, and we've been using this for a while now, Right Now Media, I sent you a free invite to give you access. Do you know if you type the word marriage in Right Now Media, there's 67 video Bible studies on marriage. No excuses, people. Netflix, Saturday night, Right Now Media, pick a marriage lesson, and you and your, wife, you and your husband and wife sit down, you watch it together. Bring another couple. Call it date night. I don't care. But right now, it's free. Just pop popcorn in your microwave and get learning about godly marriage. We're also committed to marriage. In our next session of Connect Classes, we're going to be running a marriage course, and you'll know more about that. Uh, March 30th is sign up for that. So our prayer is that C4 marriages would be such a picture of Jesus that people would be drawn to him. I'm going to welcome the worship team to come back up, and as they come up and get ready to lead us, we're going to be going into a time of communion. What a great way, what a great way this morning to remind us that the cross is where we find healing in our marriages. The cross is where we find restoration, our relationship with God. Men and women, will you submit to one another in your marriage? Will each of you welcome the rule and reign of Christ? Women, will you let your wife, your husband, will you let your husband hold the umbrella? Will you welcome and encourage his leadership? 
Men, will you hold the umbrella? I love what God is doing in our church. I love how um, Andrew and Jay and Adam and these guys have started these connect groups. There is a movement of God. Yesterday you had a men's breakfast. There's a movement of God in our church for the lives of men. I believe that. I believe women are blessed by it. There is such a movement. And this is why you see men, all of this is happening because Jesus wants you to be the keeper of the umbrella. You will be happy. Your family will be happy and protected and God will be honored. But here is the key. So as we, as we prepare for communion, listen to the word of God. Philippians 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. But here's what happens when we submit to one another. Therefore, God exalted him in the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, Every knee, every woman, every man will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ, he is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. As we take communion, will you come to the cross? Will you recognize that that is where you find oneness? That is where you find healing in your marriages. If you do not know Jesus today, Today is a good day. The communion is a good place to find Jesus, to say, I welcome the reign and rule of you, Jesus, in my life. Please, Jesus, hold the umbrella. Please be my protector and my shield. Please rescue me. If you're running from Jesus today, we ask that you don't take communion because this is a symbol that you're united with him. But would you come to him now and repent and, re and confess and return to Jesus? Do you need to make things right in your marriage? Do you need to make things right with Jesus? Jesus says, be united. Look at me. Look at me. Look at my body. It's broken for you. Look at my blood. I shed it for you. Remember me.